0: Comments and the readings before. Um, we're talking about hope, though. Okay, hope uh, in in our in the midst of climate change. So, what I wanted to do this morning is um, I wanna I want us to come away with a text that we can actually go to to find inspiration and value for for climate change. Um, and. Um, the text that I want to uh, want us to uh, think through uh, uh, about or over is in Romans eight. Um, did it um, get it? Romans eight, verses eighteen through twenty-five. Now, here's the thing. So I'm a professor at uh, in religious studies. <clears throat> so I've come up with an with an with an original translation. Okay. So this took a lot of work, and the only way I was able to do that was I'm actually writing a paper. On this being presented to the American Academy of Religion, okay. So here is the. This is Romans um, 8, 18 through 25. If you follow along, just realize that there's going to be differences because um, I don't think it's uh, any translation that I've read. I don't think is necessarily you know very good. Of course, do I consider mine the best? Of course, you know. Life is all about me. So here's how it reads. For I consider the sufferings of the present moment not comparable to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. For creation's earnest expectation awaits the revealing of God's daughters and sons. For creation was subjected to futility against its will. On account of the one who subjected it against hope. Because creation itself will be set free from the bondage of decay. Into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that all creation groans and travails together until now. And not only creation, but even we who have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves... Grown while, <clears throat> while awaiting our adoption, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we were saved. However, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? If, however, we hope for what we do not see, then we find ourselves patiently awaiting. Okay, so what I want to talk about um, this morning is uh, what, what kind of hope can we have? in the midst of such dire circumstances. So Ryan's asked me to give the first of five discussions concerning Christians and the environment. Being the first to speak on the subject uh, from a Christian restoration ecology perspective is a rather daunting task for several reasons. One concerns the poor track record that Western Christianity has exhibited over the last thousand years. One reason for this history of human-centered theology, and that's a very negative thing, I think, that developed early because of the cultural context from which Christianity sprang, an, anthropo- an anthropocentric culture, a human-centered culture, where value was centered on humans primarily, and a patriarchal structure where among humans, males were privileged over females. Consequently, the church's sacred texts were interpreted from a limited and privileged perspective. One example of many is the work that the image of God was made to do for the church. Of all God's creation, the in Latin it's called "Imago Dei," the Latin uh, phrase for image of God, was associated with humans exclusively. And of those humans, it was exclusively males who were identified as having it and give, been given the authority that comes with that role. This authority and responsibility was also interpreted from a male framework. Care for the world was seen in terms of dominion and control by man as he saw fit. After all, he was God's representative of uh, representative authority on earth, right? Now, a second reason that has caused me some consternation is that humans find themselves in the midst of an ecological crisis that's been exponentially growing since the Industrial Revolution and even escalating more over this last century. Currently, there are a multitude of scientific studies and books written on the dire straits that humans face in the midst of a problem that they themselves must acknowledge as of their own making to a certain extent. Now, this is just the facts. Regardless of the way a sizable portion of evangelical Christians attempt to deflect the evidence, whether through some appeal to governmental or scientific conspiracies, through liberal agendas, through biblical indifference, or institutional cover ups. The news is so depressing and the problems so large that the only option that seems to be open is the ostrich position. Are you familiar with that one? Mm-hmm. But that cannot be the only option for concerned and responsible people of faith, and indeed it is not. So this morning, I want to do two things. One is to highlight a text that Christians can use as a starting point to think critically or to theologize about creation care. Um, i 've done this with a fresh translation of romans 8, um, 18 through twenty five Now for those of you that don 't get off on deep readings of scripture, then just read it a couple of times and we 'll move on to my second goal and which involves developing another approach to discipleship that includes a hands in the dirt that includes hands in the dirt practices. Um, but let me highlight a couple of things in the Romans passage since we could probably and should spend more time uh, on these things at some point. Paul's talking about how to live in the midst of weakness in Romans chapter 8. In the midst of weakness, in the midst of oppression, and in the midst of lack. But in such situations, we have a hope that is more than adequate to address these issues. Paul is putting his whole Tool chest in this concept of hope. This hope is not just an unfocused outlook that the future will turn out okay. Rather, it is a militant attitude that refuses to succumb to adversity. and perceived insurmountable obstacles. Now, hope is not necessarily a good feeling, but rather an obstinate and aggressive approach to life in the midst of pain, suffering, and struggle. To hope is an active verb. It's not a passive, my options have played out, some kind of Hail Mary past thrown into the end zone hoping for the best well I hope it all works out it's a militant approach to life now you might say ah, all well and good Paul of Tarsus but where do we get this hope for those of us who seek to live as if God is the sustainer and a savior of all it is God's Spirit who supports us, comforts us, and gives us the strength to hope. Even in our inability to pray correctly, it is the Spirit that picks up the slack. Paul talks about that in just a couple of verses later on. And what Paul says here in Romans is that his sustaining Spirit is for all nature's creatures and systems. Paul addresses nature's creatures and systems as if they are subjects. Just like humanity, just like you, just like me. Notice that nature has a will, and that will has been subjugated and abused in many instances. Just like many human groups have been oppressed, held down, and abused. But through the power of God's sustaining activity in this world. Even in the midst of subjugation, creation continues to work in the hope. In the militant hope that it will be restored. It never stops. It never gives up. To think of hope in this light will get you into Paul's ballpark of active discipleship. In many instances, it can be militant and countercultural in its tenacity and outlook. For Paul, both nature and humanity have this radical hope in their tool chest only because of God's active presence. God, uh, Paul calls it God's, calls it God's spirit. Stands by us, undergirds us, and energizes us. More could be said about um, about this at this point. But I only have one sermon, and it's uh, quickly falling away right now. So, for instance, just give an example. When Paul writes above, creation was subjugated to futility against its will on account of the one who subjected it against hope. Who... Is Paul talking about? Who has the ability to subjugate creation to such futility? This is a hard text to interpret. Historically, interpreters have focused on only two options. Well, it's either God or it's Satan. And most interpreters, believe it or not, choose God. God Subjugated something against its will? Does that sound like the God that you worship and love? I think both of these options are terribly inadequate. But there was one very powerful man who engaged in the subjugation business during Paul's time. And he did not just subjugate humans. One man in the whole known world at the time. Who do you think that might be? But I need to move on to my second point. We can, if, you, if you want to talk about it later afterwards, let's do that. For several hundred years, there have been environmentalists and naturalists who have taken their stand alongside nature and her ecosystems and contributed to a movement that has recently been identified as restoration ecology such voices include names like aldo leopold thomas berry rachel carson you know a famous book um in uh, that she wrote in the 60s such voice um uh, <clears throat> to name just a few these and many others did not simply identify environmental problems but they chose to do something about it in their local communities So the option I want to offer up is restoration as a hopeful. Now, how am I defining hopeful? As a militantly hopeful approach for the local churches to pursue, and I hope Mission Hills Christian Church as well. Restoration ecology represents a strategic attempt to restore wholeness, to our local surroundings through community projects. It focuses on the interrelatedness of human and natural systems... and so stands for a series of different assumptions about our relationship with others. And by others, I mean human and non-human. A series of, of assumptions of which I just want to offer up two. First of all, it assumes that others, including non-humans have intrinsic value. A horse has value just because it's a horse, not because of what the horse can provide for humans. Secondly, restoration assumes different roles of human-nature relations. As I said before, for hundreds of years, Christians viewed their relationship to nature as one of domination. Now, to soften this oppressive understanding, Christian thinkers began to reframe the concept of control in terms of stewardship instead Instead of in terms of stewardship. Many informed Christians today hold that view, and I would assume many in the audience right now do as well. This view of stewardship envisions humans as trustees of a planet that belongs not to them, but to God. Sounds pretty good, right? Yet humans are still perceived as the holders of control, even though that control is for God. Now, rather, restorationists view their relations with nature in terms of not stewardship, but partnership, which decenters or shifts the place of the role of humans in relation to the earth and its non-human others. Humans are simply... Plain members and citizens of the land community. As partners, humans are participants among rather than stewards over the rest of creation. striving to listen and to live mutually with the non-human others in their midst. Now probably the first Christian thinker with this view was St. Francis in the 12th century. But his advocacy of partnership was silenced and shelved for hundreds of years. Now, why? His view was overlooked probably because it blurred the distinction between humans and non-humans. But today, his views are resurfacing along with others. Communities of of ecological restoration focus on their immediate environments. As such, restoration communities are not necessarily Christian or even religious. But Christian communities that do embrace restorative practices in their local communities can bring additional tools of spirituality to care for God's creation. So let me close with four reasons or challenges for us at Mission Hills Christian Church to consider seriously, uh, as you can tell, my heartfelt challenge. to the way we as a community relate to our local government. One, restoration represents the most hopeful approach. That is, I mean militantly hopeful approach as it focuses on local issues of environmental and social justice. There are issues of environmental and social injustice in our community here. Two, Practicing ecological restoration <clears throat> involves experiencing nature nature at a sensory dimension. Gloves, dirt, tools, etc. Three, experiencing nature as, uh, um, at a sensory level creates feelings of deep connection as it taps into the loving perception... Of nature. Perhaps another way to view this is in terms of the initial bonding that takes place between a parent and their child. Can you remember that first time that um, your son or daughter, or grandson or granddaughter, or niece or nephew, that you saw them, maybe they were placed in your arms? that's a powerful bonding moment that's a sensory guttural feeling four restoration uh, restorative practices are undertaken as a community endeavor which leads to my two final points first this focus on restoration community both widens our arms to embrace those that have been trampled down in the name of progress, both human and non-human brothers and sisters. St. Francis would call the birds his, and, and, and then and the, and the deer his brothers and sisters. Second, <clears throat> a restoration approach challenges... Previous romantic assumptions about community that privilege unity over difference, oneness over otherness, and harmony over ambiguity. P- people come to church you know wanting you know um, uh, seeking oneness or r- 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 similarity when things get sticky or kind of um, uh, problematic. Oh, gosh, I'm out of here. You know, I, I, that's not a church for me. But see, a restoration ecology approach says that uh, community doesn't even take place till you start having, uh, having some, uh, some confrontation. You see, nature is beautiful, but, it's all, but nature can also be frightening and deadly. And it is precisely this ambiguity between between harmony and tension that makes community. See, a a restoration ecology approach could even inform our understanding of how we as a community get along. The basis of community is not conforming to our similarities, but by engaging one another in our differences. By listening to a diversity of voices, one better appreciates the ongoing conflicts and the living tensions that communities have. It is our physical engagements with with other humans and non-humans that can create a spiritual connection. Alongside feelings of sorrow, lament, and even guilt in relation to the land's degradation we can experience a sense of fulfillment, satisfaction, hope, amazement, and wonder at the healing capacities of both land and the human spirit. We may even create or participate in rituals where we as a community celebrate our connections through our shared work to restore the wholeness of the other, whether human or non-human. Now, how would that look? Well, for instance, Easter rituals that historically uh, celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection by focusing on humanity, well, if Jesus' death redeemed all creation, perhaps we should widen our symbols and rituals. Now, what would that look like that's where we, it would be interesting to have a, a creative theological discussion. Group, community discussion on what that would look like. And if nature does, does indeed reflect the glory of God, perhaps we could catch an insight from nature about the militancy of the spirit-energized hope. And at that point, can we pull up, is it possible, what, that one slide of the little plant growing out of the stump and I, and I want to I close with this. So we were on vacation uh, this summer. And, you know, we were going through. And I can remember years ago, we went through um, Yellowstone when the, those terrible fires were, re, you know, just wreaking havoc through. And so it was actually with a little fear and trepidation that I go, okay, let's try it again. So I was, uh, we were driving through, you can see... the the fire just, you know, wreaked havoc. But what do you see here? If, so let me read this last sentence again. And if nature does indeed reflect the glory of God, Uh, perhaps we could catch an insight from nature about the militancy of hope. God bless you all.